Welcome to Short Season 2. I'm Jen Thomas. I live in London, UK. And I'm Lizzie Falconer, and I'm in Portland, Oregon. We are two long-distance friends who want to talk about what we're reading. This podcast is about how reading short stories can show the world through different perspectives. Today we're reading A Cheater's Guide to Love by Junot Diaz, published in The New Yorker in 2012. It's also the final story in Diaz's 2012 short story collection, This Is How You Lose Her, which was a finalist for the US National Book Award. In A Cheater's Guide to Love, we follow Diaz's narrator, Junior, through six years of his life, starting from when his fiancée catches him cheating. Junior is a young Dominican-American college professor trying to write and teach and prove himself in Boston. The story, told in the second person, gives the narrator an up-close and personal view into Junior's thoughts, actions, and consequences as he attempts to heal his broken heart and build a new life. Throughout the story, he ricochets from one woman to another. He gains weight, loses weight, takes up running, injures himself, takes up yoga, injures himself again, travels to the Dominican Republic, and ultimately faces down his own mistakes in the form of a doomsday book, the printed proof of all of his cheating that his ex-fiancé made for him. Okay. So, Jen, we're running shorts a bit differently today. So for those who've listened before, normally Jen and I read a story and then we discuss it chronologically. We talk about main themes, our reaction, choices by the author, things like that. I mean, that makes it sound like we're really organized. Yes, it does. (laughs) Sometimes we just chat. Normally we're like, and then let's talk about the sex scene. Uh, (laughs) But today I wanted to get a bit deeper into this story and particularly the relationship between the reader and the writer. And today we'll be focusing on the tricky and murky question of how do the actions of a writer impact your reading of their work? You ready? I mean... I don't know if I am. It's such a different structure. I'm like, a, I'm ready to receive. I'm ready to receive uh, all that you give. <laughs> and I have been hyper fixating on everything I could read about Juno Diaz for the last, I don't know, month and a half. We had this idea for the finale of season two quite a while ago. And I have really gone into research mode as if I'm back in grad school. <laughs> And I have gone into passive reading mode as if I was back at university. Just read and don't do any preparation. I just appreciate you indulging me in this, Jen, because what is nerdier than me being like, oh, there's this one story that I love, but I feel complicated about it. And I just want to read a lot of other authors' takes on it and then talk about it. Do you want to do that with me for 60 minutes on a podcast? (laughs) I'm here for it. I'm here for it. Yes. Oh, so speaking of all the research I did, I think it's important that I start out by saying I got to give credit where credit is due. This conversation around Juno Diaz started years ago, and it was primarily uh, started and created by academics and writers and particularly Latinx folks and women. They're the ones who have been writing and thinking critically about Juno Diaz and his work and how it relates to literature and our broader themes of understanding in the literary world and beyond for a long time. So I tried to really center their work in this conversation. So specifically, 
I read and loved the text, I Think About You X, rereading Junot Diaz after the silence, which was written by Maya Gil Albi, assistant professor of Latinx literature at UMass Lowell, and the Twitter thread of Alejandro Heredia on Twitter, Heredia underscore Aleja, who's a writer, community organizer, and community outreach manager at PEN America. So those two really set the scene for a lot of what we're going to talk about today. And I'm going to put a full list of sources in the show notes because I am a nerd at my core, core heart. I am a nerd. (laughs) All right. So Jen, you've read this story a few times, but you don't know much about Junot Diaz or his previous works, right? I would like to say that I know nothing. I hadn't heard of Junot Diaz before you recommended this story. And I read, because we had this idea to structure this episode differently, I have done even less prep than usual, friends. So all I've done is read this story through a few times. I've taken kind of notes of the things that jumped out at me. But yeah, I am, I don't know anything about the writer beyond what he's written in this specific story. And I think I'm going to be in the same position as a lot of our listeners. So I'm with you folks. So Jen has read the story a few times, doesn't know much about Juno. And I, on the other hand, have had a low-key simmering obsession for Juno Diaz's work and his frank, kind of brusque, lights-out, magical realism style since I read his first collection called Drown in college. And so since then, I've seen Juno speak publicly. I've read everything he's ever written. And I consider his novel, The Brief Wondrous Life of Oscar Wow, one of my favorite books of all time. So yeah. <laughs> Obsession. That's a good, that's a good mm-hmm. word to use. Yes. So I think it's important. I majored, I'm a white lady, obviously, but I majored in Spanish in college and focused on Spanish literature. And I also majored in Latin America, or I'm sorry, in international studies focusing on Latin America. So Juno's work was really important to me when I was studying. And it really defined how I thought about writing as well. But the issue is there were allegations of sexual misconduct and verbal abuse that surfaced against him back in 2018. And since then, I've had to reconsider my own feelings about not just Junot Diaz, but his narrator, the backbone of all of his major work, Junior de las Casas. So hang on, this, all of his work has the same narrator? Not all of it, but his three major works, which is Drown, The Book of Short Stories, The Brief Wondrous Life of Oscar Wilde, and This Is How You Lose Her do feature Junior as their main narrator. Mm -hmm. Okay, so this is a character he returned to again and again. I mean, for those who have read this story, I don't know. This is, that narrator is such a complicated, maybe not even complicated. It's just such a misogynist. It's so interesting that that's a character that he comes back to again and again. And I didn't know about these allegations of sexual misconduct. So that's, I'm already... I'm ready to peel this onion. Already changes a little bit how you feel about the writing, doesn't it? And wait until I tell you all about how Junot has compared himself to Junior over the years. All right. So we'll get in, we'll get into that. But before we get into the deeper analysis of the story, I just want to set you up, help you understand who Junot Diaz is. So he was born in the Dominican Republic. He moved to New Jersey when he was six. Central to his work is the Latino immigrant experience. He's called himself a Dominican writer writing about Dominican things. So that identity is very central, immigrant Dominican. And we we see that throughout, this is how you lose, uh, 
A Cheater's Guide to Love. So he talks often, not only in his writing, but in interviews about his experience growing up in poverty in the U.S. and the brutal racism he experienced and how both of those things inform his writing. He's also been open about his experience as a survivor of childhood sexual abuse, which we'll talk about, and the violent, abusive relationship he had with his father. So he's, he's a complicated human being, but he is a pillar in the literary community. I mean, Brief Wondrous Life of Oscar Wilde won the Pulitzer Prize for Fiction in 2008. He is a creative writing teacher at MIT. Do you know what MIT is, Jen? Okay, I didn't that know if that I was... Know. All right. Um, that one's, that one's an international. <laughs> I'm like, who's this writer? What's a Pulitzer Prize? What's MIT? Where's America? Um, <laughs> Where is it? Okay, good. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you got it. So he's a creative writing teacher at MIT. Wait, he is, he was still an... write... is he still teaching at MIT? Yes, he okay. is. He was an editor at the Boston Review. He was awarded the 1999 Guggenheim Fellowship for Creative Writing, and he also won the MacArthur Fellowship Genius Grant. He's won all the things. He's won big, major literary awards. Wow. He won the MacArthur Genius Grant? Mm-hmm. That, mm-hmm. Isn't that like the million-dollar prize? Yeah, I think so. Should have looked that up, but it's a big deal. Yeah. Yeah. So... That's just a little bit about his background. He grew up in poverty. He overcame that. And now he is literally like a towering figure in literary circles, especially when you're talking about Latinx writers. I mean, he is, he was on the syllabus for most contemporary, many, many contemporary writing courses around the country. So. I mean, it's really interesting to hear that. I mean, you can tell that through how this story is written, that he is an extraordinary writer and a powerful writer. But for a writer to have had that success, particularly a writer of color from a kind of, from a lower class background is extraordinary. I mean, that's, that's on, that's obviously hugely unusual. And, uh, you know, from a, from lots of different perspectives, you think, wow, this is someone who's really a a huge success, a huge, as you say, a towering figure, right? Absolutely. And so throughout Junot's career as a writer, this question about misogyny has always plagued him because of his narrator, Junior, and the way that he talks about women, the way that violence seemed to befall the characters in his stories about how Junior thinks about women, sees them. And The Atlantic published this article called How Junot Diaz Wrote a Sexist Character But Not a Sexist Book that was about This Is How You Lose Her, which our stories published it. And it says, Diaz said he wrote the book in part to acknowledge the deep sexism that pervades our culture, but frequently remains unaddressed. He admits that by tackling the topic head on, he's risking writing a book that is perceived as sexist or is sexist. But he quoted a favorite line from James Baldwin. Not everything that is faced can be changed, but nothing can be changed until it is faced. In this light, Diaz feels he has a moral obligation to reckon with male privilege. What do you think? Mm -hmm. This is really interesting because Mm -hmm. I really hated reading this story. (laughs) Okay. I was like, when do I say it? When do I say I hated the experience of reading this story? Because I hate the narrator. And I hate what he says and I hate what mm-hmm. he thinks. And I think he has no redeeming qualities of any kind. So yeah. it's like, yeah. I disliked reading it so much that I disliked, 
I felt like I disliked the author for mm. even having the ability to create and articulate the level of misogyny that pervades the story with no external perspective of other women or men mm -hmm. who have a different perspective or any any other non-misogynist viewpoint essentially so it's interesting that it's like look he's you know that, that there's criticism that says look he's shining a light on something when it's like you don't need to shine a fucking light on male privilege <laughs> we're living through it shining a light on it is like saying let's let's talk you know it's can't even think can't even end that sentence <laughs> Yeah. Shining a light on, on it is like... It's like shining a light on a bonfire. Thank you. That's perfect. <laughs> you know, I, I mean, especially, I think, as women readers, especially as women I'm readers. I'm interested to know if the article that you refer to in The Atlantic was also written by a man. I think it was, but I will double check. <laughs> Link in the show notes. So, <laughs> I mean, I remember the first time I read this story, Jen, I'd just been cheated on. My My long-term boyfriend had cheated on me. And I remember that this story like made me feel physically ill. Like I was seeing inside the mind of my ex-boyfriend and seeing the way that he and other men had like cut me into parts and evaluated me as prey, as dominance, as something. And it also made me feel like it was like I was seeing something that was true. Like this is how men really think or, and it was horrifying and awful. And also the reality of like his desperate attempts to get his fiance back. He was finally doing things she'd asked him to do, like walking along the beach where they filmed piano, quoting Neruda, finding a therapist, canceling Facebook. Like you could check, that is every single thing that my ex-boyfriend tried to do to get me back. And it felt so real and it felt horrible. But I also felt in reading it, I was like, oh, I thought he was showcasing Junior as this horrible man who ultimately lives a really sad life, like to call attention to it and to call attention to the fact that this misogyny breeds pain. But it did make me uneasy. I loved it because it was an unsettling, kind of horrifying read, it made me feel shocked. But it also made me feel like it was high art in some way, like the author was in on the joke and the, making a mockery of Junior as like a mockery of misogyny. That's so interesting because I just feel like the... The lack of perspective mm -hmm. of Unir within the story. So, like, yes, this character seems like a mockery, but there's some kind of redemption at the end, not of him in terms of his morality, but just that he manages to, like, turn his shitty behavior into some kind of positive creative force without any kind of actual evolution of character is, like fucking shit goes on like mm -hmm. he's learned nothing there's no women in this story who are fully rounded people there are no it's like it's like this is a fantasy version of of malehood and I'm don't want to be there I don't want to be it didn't feel like high art to me it felt like male fantasy of the worst kind yeah I think that's reading it back that's how I feel too Jen I think that it feels like some sick male fantasy. So, but he was really, he was really praised for the bravery of some of this language. And I think that he also is an expert at, and we'll talk more about this, the way he mixes Spanish and English, the way he uses colloquialisms, the way that he has this like cool voice, this, and, and it can be hard to untangle that 
from the true misogyny of Junior and ultimately what how we feel about the author. So these claims have followed him, his his career. He spends a lot of interviews talking about Junior and talking about why he writes Junior this way and giving us kind of our his analysis of his own character. So on April 16th, 2018, he publishes a first-person essay in The New Yorker called The Silence. And it's a 5,000-word, heart-wrenching, and detailed personal account of the sexual abuse he suffered as a child and the way the trauma, confusion, and shame turned him into a man who was wearing a mask, unable to get close to people, and hurting many women in the process. It's a really intense read. And it received a lot of support immediately following the publication because he was speaking out about a taboo issue, you know, sexual abuse of children, but especially in the Dominican community and as as a man and the way that that made him feel emasculated. So the immediate reaction was really strong in support of him. And it is, honestly, I do, it's an incredible read, especially if after reading, just reading A Cheater's Guide to Love. But a few days after it came out, there was another narrative uh, that started to swirl around the essay. Do you want to guess what it was? Any ideas? Did you say it was 20, is this 2018? 2018. Are we in me, are we in me too? We are, we are in the middle of me too. What did he do? Or what's he been accused of? So the narrative before any allegations came out, there was, the narrative started to be about how in this essay, it's very focused on Junot's pain. And he talks and he's open about the ways in which he hurt the women in his life. He talks about cheating on women. He talks about lying to them, but the focus of their pain is never there. It's all about how on the road to healing himself, he hurt a lot of women. So women as a tool, and especially women of color, as a tool to heal himself, which is something we see in his work. So that starts coming about. People start noticing that about his piece, but then things really start to fall apart for him on May 4th, 2018. And I'm going to send you this tweet to read. Oh my goodness. It was, ri- it was written by writer Zinzi Clemens to her personal Twitter account. Okay, I've got it. As a grad student, I invited Junot Diaz to speak to a workshop on issues of representation in literature. I was an unknown, wide-eyed 26-year-old, and he used it as an opportunity to corner and forcibly kiss me. I'm far from the only one he's done this to. I refuse to be silent anymore. It kind of cracked open a dam. And soon after, authors Carmen Maria Machado, who we love yes, on this podcast. Yeah, who wrote Mary When You Follow Her. Mm-hmm. Monica Byrne and many other women went public with their own experiences with Diaz, alleging that he publicly berated them or it was, it was mistreatment. Um, and other women have come forward with similar stories and allegations. So sexual misconduct, verbal abuse type of allegations. In the 2018 radio piece, Juno and Me Too on Latino USA, Amanda Alcantara speaks poignantly about how these allegations were especially difficult to young Latinx and Dominican writers who saw Juno as a kind of a hero. She also shares that stories of Juno being mean and explosive were secreto a voces, an open secret among young, particularly Latina women writers. Mm -hmm. So it was just layering and layering. There was just more and more allegations coming out against him. Yep, more and more. They stayed, I think it's important to say they were misconduct 
and verbal abuse. I mean, it, I want to be specific about what people were alleging. So he faced, I mean, it was me too, like you're saying, and he faced harsh treatment online, but it was an incredibly polarizing debate. Some people were saying he needed to step down from his prestigious posts, while others were saying that he was a victim of cancel culture. I mean, one of the world's worst debates. <laughs> yeah. I mean, let's not get into it, but I think- No, we will not. Whoa. Yeah. And this academic paper I read by Professor Maya Ali, who I'm honestly, I'm obsessed with her. This, this article was so good. She, and she, in her article, she talks about how those, that kind of like polar conversation ignore the role of race and class and coloniality within what's happening in a particular instance. And so, or this was like really surprising to me after this, all these allegations came out, there was a letter published and signed by 26 Latinx female authors that was called open letter against media treatment of Juno Diaz. And they wrote, to quote, characterization of Diaz as a dangerous and aggressive sexual predator from whom all women must be protected reinforces the racist stereotypes that cast Black and Latinxes as having an animalistic nature. Wow. I mean, it is interesting that in the furore of the cultural moments like Me Too, there does seem to be a lack of kind of perspective from the media. So it's it becomes so easy to pile on. So you know it's 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 hard sometimes to separate the kind of the fact from the from the drama of some of those stories. So you know and in a social media age it just you know things just boom around the echo chamber, right? So you know a handful of allegations or a or a slew of allegations I can imagine, I can imagine could be twisted and become something more and more sinister or painted in a different way. But how interesting that these Latinx women and authors came out and said, what's happening is wrong and really stood, stood, stood by him in some way, or at least stood against some of the media portrayals. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it, it is. Once I got into the allegations and what really happened, it was much more complex than I thought. I, no, I would say the reaction to it was much more complex than I had thought. And especially because this came out right after he'd published that essay about his own sexual abuse. And there was a lot of wondering about that. Like, was that a move because he knew that these things were going to come out to create sympathy for himself? I mean, it was, but he is a victim, but also a victimizer. I mean, super complicated. Yeah. So those are just some of the you know, reactions that happened. So Jen, what do you think happened to Juno after all of this came out? Oh my goodness. I mean, I would hope that he, maybe there was some kind of investigation of the claims, you know, potentially he may have, you know, with that kind of reputational hit, I don't know, maybe did he, did he step, have to step down from his position at MIT? Great question. So in the nearly four years since the allegations came out, his career has remained largely intact. MIT did a yeah. <laughs> yeah. MIT did a review of the allegations and cleared him of sexual misconduct. And the Boston Review decided to keep him on as a fiction editor. He's no longer there, but he was at the time, saying in part, we do not think that any of the individual actions that have been reported are the kind that requires us to end the editorial relationship. Whoa. That's mm. interesting. Isn't it? Yeah. So especially when other yeah. when when Authors who, you know, female authors would have been, have accused him of 
verbal abuse. It's interesting that they're like, oh, no, nothing here. Yeah. And that's where I think his position in the literary world and, you know, a Pulitzer Prize winner, a MacArthur genius is protects him in some ways. I mean, uh, I don't know the extent of the review that they did, but that's those were the findings. And so then Diaz did himself release a statement and he said that he takes responsibility for my past. That is the reason I made the decision to tell the truth of my rape and its damaging aftermath. He also said he's listening to and learning from women's stories in this essential and overdue cultural movement. We must continue to teach all men about consent and boundaries. I mean, I feel like I've read a thousand of those statements since 2017. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, Jen, get this. Get what? Guess what happens next? A month later, he retracted that statement. Oh my God. <laughs> what? Yeah. And he said in another interview, I think it was with the Boston Globe, I've written a lot of crap in my life. One does when one's a writer, but definitely that statement is the worst thing I've written. The worst thing I've put my name to. Whoa. Well, that's very interesting. I mean, it's listening to, and what does he say? Listening to and learning from women's, women's Mm -hmm. stories. It's like, uh, it just, it does ring very, very hollow for a man who's been accused of multiple counts of, of abuse against women. Mm -hmm. Um, So like, why did he release the statement? And then why did he retract it? And what the hell, what did he replace it with something else that was a bit more genuine? Not that I could find, but I mean, it's, it's possible. Uh, He has gone largely silent. I haven't seen much of him in the public lexicon since this happened, but he remains a creative writing teacher at MIT, you know, uh, living off his genius grant. Yeah, exactly. So that's now, you know, a little bit about Juno Diaz. And I think this will help you. I thought all of this was important to the analysis junior and this story. I don't think it's going to help me like the story anymore. (laughs) (laughs) This is going to be one where we, where we talk each other around to liken the story. I feel I can feel my heels digging in as we as we speak and as I learn. In contemporary literature, I'm not sure that there's a narrator who has who's as well known, but also has such a distinctive voice as Junior. And as we mentioned, he's in all three of his creative works. I mean, He's he's different ages throughout the stories, but his life and his self is defined by his ability to sleep with as many women as possible. He cheats, he lies, he talks about women like he's eyeing a prime rib. He's all manliness and bravado, and he's barreling towards his own self-destruction because he cannot seem to empathize or take seriously the concerns of women in his life. But he's also a bit of a nerd, like he talks sci-fi, he... He is smart, he writes, but he is so flawed. And we've had our fair share of unlikable narrators on this podcast, on shorts. We had our girl Margot in Cat Person. We had the main character in Passage. So, but I, I see, Jen, that you've had a stronger reaction to Junior. So I just, <laughs> t- tell me tell me about your first impressions of him and reading this story. I mean, obviously, I mean, the first line is, you know, your girl catches you cheating. So you immediately know that this is a narrator who not only is cheating in a relationship, but like has been caught out. So it's not like he cheated and then felt remorse, but like 
oh, I've been caught. And it just, there is, in these first initial paragraphs, there is so much disregard and disrespect of women. I hated him. So in passage, like the narrator was bumbling. He was kind of a mess. He was made mistakes and, you know, but he wasn't, you didn't feel like he was malicious. You felt like he was maybe ignorant or lost or nervous. But with this guy, he talks about, he talks about the women he's seeing. He talks about the woman he's in relationship with, with such disregard. The quote that you said earlier about the, from the women who had supported Diaz and saying the characterization of him is as a dangerous and aggressive sexual predator, reinforcing the racial stereotypes. It's like, this is what we're doing. This is what he's doing here. He's reinforcing the racist stereotypes in paragraph one around like a Dominican man being this kind of Lothario and sleeping with all these women and not giving a shit. And I just, I don't understand why this would be, how this is like a satire or how this is a kind of commentary. This is just a horrible, horrible, horrible narrator. <laughs> That's how I felt. <laughs> that was my strong reaction <laughs> at the beginning. Yeah, it, it you know, Junior is both so trapped, like, in his own, the patriarchy, what it traps men and women. We know he's so trapped in his own obsession with women, but like Diaz's use of English and Spanish starts year zero. Your girl catches you cheating. Well, actually she's your fiance, but Hey, in a bit, it so won't matter. She could have caught you with one sucia. She could have caught you with two, but because you're a totally batshit cuero who never empties his email trash can, she caught you with 50. Sure. Over a six year period, but still 50 fucking girls? God damn. Maybe if you'd been engaged to a super open-minded Blanquita, you could have survived it. But you're not engaged to a super open-minded Blanquita. Your girl is a badass salsidense who doesn't believe in open anything. (laughs) It's second-person narration. We are in Junior's thoughts. And the flow of the language, it does feel like a conversation. It feels like it's rolling off the tongue. And the way he uses words like sucia, which here are like whore or slut, like she could have got you with one slut. She could have got you with two. You know, the way he's using Spanish just sprinkled into English, I always love. But I noticed it, that in this story, it's mostly related to women, their bodies, and like the color of their skin. Like he's often, that's, he's he's using Spanish in that way. And I, I, I don't know what to think about that, really. <laughs> I mean, I don't speak Spanish and you do, as you'll probably be able to tell listeners from Lizzie's perfect pronunciation. But I wonder about that because for me, it heightened that sense that this is like, this is kind of reinforcing that stereotype of kind of Latin men being, you know, treating women like shit because of the way that he peppers the language. And I'm and I'm interested in understanding how his writing of a character like this, of a narrator like this, meant that he was put on a pedestal of, of, of Latin American men and writers. Because to me, it comes across as like, he's playing into the stereotypes. He is using that to, he's using the language, he's using the Spanish to be like, to set us firmly within this specific community and then telling us that this community is corrupt and misogynist. So I'm interested to understand how he was revered to be sort of pushing against that or 
challenging those stereotypes? Well, I think that the important piece to understand here is this story was written after the publication of Brief Wonder's Life. And Brief Wonder's Life is a family novel set in the Dominican Republic that tells the story of, well, Junior is telling the story of his family and the horrific atrocities that they've suffered under as a result of the Trujillo, this dictatorship in the Dominican Republic. And it is fucking genius. I mean, he, the way that he uses language, the way he uses Spanish and history and language to kind of crack open the violence, the history of the Dominican Republic, the violence and the way that that trauma haunts a nation, but also haunts individuals and the way that people recreate that kind of violence. I mean, it is, it's a beautiful, but funny and smart, amazing book. And I think that Oscar Wow, that book does a lot more and made people feel from what I've read, Dominicans and other Latinos feel more seen and important than, than I think we can capture in this story. So I think that's the important context is I've got his. It. So there's context to the, even to this character. So yeah, obviously there's broader context of the community of the society, which I don't feel like comes through really in this story. And maybe that's partly how I'm, why I have such a strong reaction is because I'm kind of in the dark about so much of this context. But it's interesting to hear that we already know Unir, like Unir already exists in the literary world. And maybe we understand him more so that when we reach, when we meet him at this point of his life, you can understand you're a bit more forgiving of how he's become this, this man. Is that kind of what you're saying? Yeah, I think that that is part of it. And I think that there's also, I think that Junot uses Spanish and he uses the racism that exists within the Dominican community, but also the racism that he's experienced as an immigrant that Junior experiences throughout the story in Boston. He's just like shit's falling apart for him. And then he's getting like yelled at by a grandmother or pulled over by a police officer again, like this in the internal racism that exists within the Dominican community. Cause he's always talking about women as blanquitas, morenas, like for different colors of their skin. But then he is also constantly uh, treated differently because he's dark skinned. He's, he's uh, black and he is both in the U S and then when he goes back to the Dominican Republic in the story and is suddenly being hit up by all the local Dominicans for money and gifts and things. It's like, I think he's able to capture in his work, this, a real sense of what it can feel like to be an immigrant in the United States of not belonging to the U S because the society is constantly reminding you that you're an immigrant and you don't look a certain way. And maybe you don't speak English the certain way, but then that displacement of you go back home, wherever that home is in this case, the DR, and you're still not Dominican enough, or you're still not, you're still viewed as other. And I think that, I think there's part, there's aspects of his, his work that he was, you know, people felt seen and they felt heard, but there are so many other Dominican female writers and Caribbean writers and that do that as well. I think he just shot to prominence in different ways. Wow. Thanks for coming to my TED talk. <laughs> um, learning so much. I'm learning. Yeah. I, well, I hope that, I mean, I like, uh, obviously, as I've mentioned, like I'm a white lady who studied Spanish literature. So when I'm looking at Diaz's work, it's, I am looking at it 
to try to understand a different culture and to try to understand a different way of thinking and seeing the world. And that's a really different experience than people who are Dominican and were feeling seen by his work and were feeling like their story was being told in certain ways. So I think that's worth worth recognizing as well. Rather so than just reading it and hating on the narrator, which is my No. My no, I think that I mean, I, I don't mean, if I if I read this now, if I read this story now as a 32-year-old woman, I think I'd have a different reaction than I did when I was 23. Okay. So, we're in the story. He has been caught cheating with 50 women. And I mean, there's so many horrible things about Junior, but the fact that he loves this woman but cannot keep it together. I mean, his heart is so broken for the first three years of this story, but he can't really admit it to himself and he couldn't stop himself from cheating. I thought it was interesting that structure of the story where we've got like year zero, year one, year two, year three. So it sort of takes us through this timeline. And I thought it was interesting that like year zero is the point where it's not the beginning of his relationship with this woman. It's the point where she finds out that he's cheated. And it just makes you kind of feel like, okay, if this is some kind of rebirth or kind of new beginning, it's like at that moment he realizes, you know, that he had something that he did actually love with his, with his fiance. But it's like, it begins sort of life begins or life re begins when he kind of realizes that he's lost her and that he's kind of goes on this journey to try and get it back and then to change his life and then to sort of have a transformation. It's, just, it's an interesting way to introduce this because you would think that the beginning might be in the beginning of this relationship that turned out was really important to him. Yeah. He doesn't really seem to acknowledge how important she was to him, not in any meaningful way. I mean, it is like his heart is positively broken, but he cannot, he's like, you know, so emotionally paralyzed. He's so emotionally stunted that he, the only thing he knows how to do is like, go find more women to sleep with. And that's, that's what he does. I mean, I was making a list of characters in this story (laughs) and there's literally like Junior, then there's Elvis, his friend. There's Arleni, who's also a friend. It's a woman, but he's never slept with her. He says that off the bat. First thing he says about her, who literally seems to just exist to like, give him womanly advice and like help him along the journey. She has no other conversations. And then here are the list of women that I was able to come right. There's the Susias, the 50 of them. There's the Iranian girl who he says, you boned the entire time you were with the fiance. Elvis's wife is mentioned. Naomi, the Dominican girl who has a child and comes over and spends the night with Junior, but won't sleep with him. And then he acts like a total dick and she leaves. There's the girl he notices while running who has an amazing fucking cuero paso, which is like sexy body. There's the Cape Verdean, which is a girl Elvis is cheating on his wife with, who he says she's a hottie in tow. And then he says some other stuff that I will not read on the microphone. There's the very young Morena law student. There's the late 30s Dominican middle-class woman who doesn't believe in racism and like tells him that he's not Dominican enough. There's the miniature Blanquita Yoga, uh, who Elvis says he should fuck the shit out of her. There's Elvis's DR baby mama. And then there's all the Dominican women in the Nada lands who are all around him. And then the end of the story, there's a lithe Dominican girl at the bar. Those are all of our characters. I mean, this is a podcast, so people can't see my face. But this is a struggle. That is a struggle to hear that list. And I guess when I just, when I first read this, when I was first reading, I think I was like trying to make sense of this writing as, is this the way that 
men really see the world? What is he trying to say by this, by characterizing women as so one-sided? Like it is so extremely misogynistic. And he talks about them like cuts of meat, you know, it's all about tetas and like ass and things like that. And I think with these revelations and these allegations, it's like, maybe this is just how he thinks. Like maybe actually the only reason that I thought that there was so much behind it is because in interviews, the author is telling me that there's so much behind it. You know, like he's giving us the analysis of his characters. Wow. Yeah. I mean, but as you were talking, I mean, obviously the thing that gets my back up about the story is, is those extremes. Is that one dimensional way that women are portrayed and even though it sort of seems like this lead character has heartbreak it's like you never hear him say a soft word about his ex or like able to kind of understand in any way her like to find any positive thing to say he just kind of hates that he's not with her anymore even though he obviously treated her like shit but as you're talking I'm like I mean it's so extreme this portrayal it's so undeniably one dimensional he gives the women no voice that is really allows us to kind of dig into who they really are or like make us feel sympathy for them or like make us kind of intrigued and excited about them as people because as you say just describes them this way it's like that's that has to be such a conscious choice so is that just incredibly smart is that how he's shining a light it just doesn't seem to kind of go anywhere but what's he trying to say by doing that? There must be a reason. Well, I've got a quote right here. I've got another <laughs> quote from that Atlantic piece of Junot telling us about what Junot thinks. He says, if it's too brute and obvious and too obvious, and here he's talking about the misogyny, Diaz said, then it becomes allegorical, becomes a parable, becomes kind of a moral tale. You want to either, you want to make it subtle enough so that there are arguments like this. The value of literature then comes from presenting readers with morally ambiguous situations and letting them react. For the kind of sophisticated art I'm interested in, he said, the larger structural rebuke has to be so subtle that it has to be distributed at an almost subatomic level. Otherwise, you fall into the kind of preachy, moralistic fable that I don't think makes for good literature. There's nothing subtle at all. <laughs> subatomic level. I'm so confused. I thought he would have be having to defend the opposite view. Like, I have painted such an extreme version of toxic masculinity that people have to sit up and see it and recognize it and kind of like criticize it because this is the extreme version but what you're saying is he's like paint a subtle tale create situations where there's moral ambiguity i mean are you fucking kidding me this moral ambiguity like what are we yeah there's yeah ambiguity. there's like this is a this is a this is a parable. This is the this is good versus evil. This is a fucking snake in the Garden of Eden. I mean, there's nothing subtle about it. And there's there's not much that's subtle in Brief Wondrous Life um or Drown. Drown has I I mean, there's still it's not subtle moral ambiguity here. We're talking about violent dictatorships and rape and violence. And you know what's interesting is that Carmen Maria Machado, you know, was one person that came forward about her experience. Um, with like the verbal abuse of of Diaz. And she, there's a recording of her talking to him in 2012 and he was speaking. And she's asking him about his decision to write in Junior's voice 
She describes Junior as being and having a borderline sociopathic disregard for everyone he fucks. And then Diaz goes on, talks about 15 minutes to her, and he's quite defensive in what he says. And he seems like exasperated and condescending to her. And she described it as a blast of misogynistic rage that he directed at her for bringing up basically what you're saying. And I think the experience of many women readers. Carmen Maria Machado, once again, you have captured my heart. (laughs) How interesting that to be faced with that challenge from a woman who is also a very respected writer, mansplained all over her for 15 minutes. You know, and she's been, people have been asking her about this for so long, but a thing she said about his work and her experience with him was the problem is that people talk about misogyny like it's a grand sinister thing of snidely whiplash tying Nell Fenwick to the tracks, she said. In reality, misogyny is really boring in its presentation and it barely makes a sound, but it does so much. It's so sinister in that way. about this story is as we move through it it's just the layer upon layer upon layer of the misogyny and that I think is what is what wears me down and I think becomes harder and harder and harder to read so it's like we start with this portrayal of this of this horrible guy who is cheating on his fiance and then it's as if he's meant to be going on some journey of discovery. Like he goes, starts running and he takes up yoga and he travels and he moves and he like deletes, you know, so-and-so's number from his phone and he deletes all his emails. It's like, it's as if he's going on a journey of discovery, but he discovers absolutely fuck all because he <laughs> to women doesn't change the way he talks about women with his best friend doesn't change the way he thinks about himself doesn't change so it's just like the man learns nothing and changes not at all from this experience and that just whittles away at me so that by the time I finished I'm just exhausted and livid like how is he not learning from these experiences how's and how hasn't he learned from this quote-unquote pain that we never really understand he's going through except the fact that he feels fucking sorry for himself when he realizes his dating life dries up it's like it's so extraordinary and just this idea that you know what you were saying about Carmen Maria Machado being like people think it's you know it's this grand thing and it's actually just like it's just fucking mundane normality that that certain men are living their lives surrounded in this cloud of privilege and entitlement and misogyny and not changing and not questioning themselves. And that is what this story does and articulates. Wow. I can't wait to wrap this up because (laughs) I have a quote that is going to blow your, it's going to make you so angry. I'm thrilled. I'm so thrilled. I'm so angry. (laughs) I'm so thrilled. Like, I mean, no, I'm not thrilled that you're angry, but I just, I, Junior brings out, especially in Cheater's Guide to Love, a sort of rage also in me that is hard to contain. And I think wasn't there when I first read it when I was 23, but now feels like almost violent in, in nature. And I think <laughs> the idea that like wow. he, before thinking that the author 
was doing something with this character, was making this character so brutally unlikable to cast a light on behavior within his own community, but also men at large. And like the way that we act out violence on people because we're hurt, like as a metaphor, there's something about that that maybe I could stomach, but it, that isn't what it is. And we know that that's not what it is because in that piece, the silence where he writes about the abuse that he went through, he has this passage, Jen, that I think will sound familiar to you. And it's important to note that in the silence, he does not use names for women. He uses the letter and then dash. So he's talking about his long-term girlfriend. He's talking about, he calls her Y in this story. Um, He talks about how he's been suffering in silence because of this rape for a long time. And it's made him so he can't get close to people. And he loves Y very much, but because he loves her and he's told her about the rape, he is cheating on her all the time. And this is Juno Diaz. Juno Diaz, he's talking about cheating. And he says in the silence, he says, one day Y didn't like an answer I'd given her about where I'd been. I'm sure she'd been having doubts for a while, especially after one woman showed up at a reading of mine and burst into tears when I said hi. Y decided to go snooping through my emails. And since I wasn't big on passwords or putting old emails in the trash, it took her less than five minutes to find what she was looking for. A heartbreak can take out a world. I know hers did. Took out her world and mine. Another woman might have shot me dead on principle. But why simply printed out all of the emails between me and all my other girls, all my bullshit seduction attempts, all the photos, had the evidence of my betrayals bound, and when I came home from one of my trips, handed them to me. Just like Junior. So suddenly, a cheater's guide to love. I mean, and this is not the only time that he compares himself to Junior. He does it constantly. But that is the beginning and that is the end of a cheater's guide to love. Yeah. And that changes how I feel about the story. In what way? I, I mean, I feel like it's less of a, I feel like knowing that this is an experience that he went through that he then fictionalized for a cheater's guide to love makes me feel less like it's a reflective look at misogyny and outrageous behavior and more of a writing fiction to understand your life and writing fiction to understand your own behavior And I don't want to say that the author and the narrator are the same person, although he himself draws parallels all the time. I'm like, oh, this isn't, there's no greater message here. Mm. This is literally about a fucking awful dude who hurts women because he himself is hurt. And he is a victim. He has suffered. Juno Diaz has suffered, but he is hurting women around him and, and not really owning up to it, not really recognizing the damage he's done. And that's not interesting. That's it, isn't it? It's like there's nothing wrong with processing personal experiences through fiction or putting parts of yourself into narratives. We've seen that again and again. But to it, it's just less interesting because I don't feel like he takes... Certainly he, he didn't take me on a journey through this story. And granted, I'm probably not his intended audience because I'm a, a white woman in... London, living my own privileged life, but he didn't take me on a journey with it. And as you say, this doesn't seem like there's a broader, higher message. So why did he want to write this story? So he could process his own shit, which is, which is okay, but it doesn't mean I want to read it. Yes. It doesn't mean you want to read it. And I guess I like, it's nothing new to compare 
a narrator to their author. And especially with Juno, like he's been asked about that, the striking similarities since between Junior and himself since Drown. Like both are Dominican American men. Both are born in the Dominican Republic, but moved to New Jersey. Both went to Rutgers University. Both are writers. I mean, he himself creates those ties and he connects them. He like wants the reader to question that that gap. And in the silence, he talks about using Junior to write the perfect cover story. And he writes that trauma leaked into my writing too, but you'd be amazed how easy it is to rewrite the truth away. And Maya Aldi, the the academic writes about this a lot. And it's just, it's like when the author, she does this, she's gonna, she says this better than I do, but when the author goes to such great lengths in their own interviews and when they're very public and talking, you know, when they go to such great lengths to tie themselves to their character, but then give us a very detailed analysis of how we should understand their character and why their character does this. It makes it pretty difficult to understand or believe him when he argues that his work is so anti-misogynistic. It's like, I don't know, his trauma in the silence, he's talking about how his trauma, he is acting out on women. He is, he's experienced this internalized misogyny. He's experienced abuse. And in his stories, that's what Junior's doing, acting out that pain on women but not really ever having to reckon with it besides, you know, Junior by the end of the story has a bad foot. He's got a bad back. He's falling apart, but he doesn't really seem to understand where that's coming from or why. But also he's processing his trauma and traumatizing women within the story, but we get no version of events that accounts those women's traumas. So those mm-hmm. women have also lived a traumatic life in the Dominican Republic and it has been compounded by a thousand traumas of misogyny and those stories aren't told in this story yeah he's replicating it he's replicating that same type of violence he's not you know shining a light as we've said he's his literature is replicating that same cycle of violence Mm. and you know, not to continue talking about my main academic, Maya Al-Adi, but she just got this shit right. She talks about like how at the end of Cheater's Guide to Love, we see him with that doomsday book printed out of all of the women, all of the times he cheated on his fiance. And he's like, maybe there's hope or something. I I didn't, I don't know. Uh, Maybe I'll write this into a book which he then, you know, then he does. This is the title of the story. But she writes that this cycle demonstrates a trend in Diaz's fiction, which positions Junior's desire for redemption and narrative failure as central. Love and desire continually lead to abuse where women are depicted as tools for the male exploration of the self. Oh, yes. I mean, she's so good. Wow. Thank goodness for her. What's her name? Her name is Maya Al-Adi. And she's a assistant professor of Latinx studies at UMass Lowell. Yes. And she talks in her piece a lot about if professors should be teaching Juno anymore in, in their classes. I highly, highly recommend it. So, I mean, to wrap this up, Jen, I think the main question we started with was around the reader's relationship with the writer and how the actions of a writer. So in this example the allegations that's come forth about Juno Diaz, as well as his own writing in the silence, how that impacts 
my reading of his work. And I don't think that there's a correct answer. I don't of how to feel about it, but I think it's, it's trying to read things in context and recognizing the complexity of the fact that this author can be a victim of horrible abuse, but also be victimizing. And maybe his writing is not the genius. Maybe parts of it are genius, but the narrative voice I don't like anymore. I don't value anymore. I mean, what are, what are you thinking at the end of this conversation? I think what's interesting is I've learned a lot about the author, obviously, and through this discussion, but it fundamentally understanding more about the author hasn't changed my experience or feeling about the story because I didn't like the narrator. I didn't like the, the story that I was being told. And so like at the beginning or end of this, I wouldn't want to read anything else by this author. Hmm. And so it's interesting that like to think, would I have felt differently if I'd have discovered that he had a different kind of narrative? But as it is, his narrative hasn't massively surprised me. So yeah. it's so interesting. Yeah, I think A Cheater's Guide to Love, I would say that story is completely different for me than when I first read it. I would say his other work, Drown, Brief Wondrous Life, still hold, I think there is still beautiful, reverent writing in it, but the context of it is important. And, you know, many people have said, oh, we should just replace Junot's books with other Dominican female writers or women of color writers. But I don't think that that fills in the gap because syllabuses and schools should not just be teaching one Dominican writer or one Caribbean writer or one Latino writer, right? Like people are not pieces that can be taken out and put in. So when thinking about how to end this podcast, I thought the best way, no one said it better in anything I read than Alexander Heredia, whose Twitter thread had was looking at if professors should still teach Junot Diaz. He was interviewed about his relationship with Junot's work now. And he said, I think in some ways, Junot Diaz is not someone as a person that I would like to look up to. I think he's disappointed us greatly, but I think I will always go back to his books. I mean, it's a very devastating moment for the literary community because he's been our big person. But I also think it's an opportunity for us to center women and to center queer people and to center the varying voices that exist within the Dominican diaspora, because there are so many experiences and things to be written about. We are so grand. We are grand people. We have so many stories to tell. Thanks for reading with me, Jen. Thanks for reading with me, Lizzie.